time, I'd like uh, Nate and Crystal to come forward and stand beside me. Uh, this Sunday, uh, we thought that we would introduce our new youth and young adult pastor and his fiance uh, and let them say a few words of greeting. Uh, this is Nate, uh, not Crystal, this is Nate. And uh, Nate comes to us from a church in Washington, D.C., actually a church very much like our own. It's a Mennonite church and very uh, cross-cultural and multicultural and multiracial. And um, this is Crystal. And uh, Crystal works for Eastern Mennonite Missions. She works with people in the field. And uh, we are absolutely delighted to have them with us. And so I'd like them to share a, a word or two. And then next week, uh, we will consecrate them to the ministry for which they are called. Thank you. Good morning. <laughs> I am very excited to be here. We are very excited to be here. From the moment we walked in the door this morning, we just felt very welcomed by everybody and just a number of you greeting us and just saying, hi, welcome, thanks. And just so we're really excited to be here. I'm excited to engage with the youth and young adults here and just excited to become family here. I was telling Crystal the other day, I said, you know, we're leaving out of out of our own former churches to become not only not only am I working here, but this is going to become my family as well, you know. And so this is really special, but just grateful for us to be here together. And uh, we're looking forward to greeting you all and getting to know you all. And um, bless you. Crystal, you want to say something? <laughs> all right. <laughs> By the way, uh, Crystal and Nate are getting married on August the 26th. Uh, that is a Sunday, and to show their commitment, they're coming to church that morning. <laughs> and e even more impressively, leading youth group that night. So we are, that is commitment. So, uh, no, we are, we are so glad you are here. And um, uh, Nate was, we, we, we actually did a multinational search, not just a national search, and we know he is God's person for us here. So would you uh, show them some welcome here? This morning, um, we'll be consecrating our deacons our deacons assist the pastors with caring for the congregation. Um, in our church's structure, they're called the Congregational Care Ministry Team. We currently have 17 individuals or couples serving as deacons, and we'll see their pictures in a few minutes um, so that you'll have a better sense of, of who they are. I count it a privilege to uh, get to work with our wonderful deacons. Each deacon, just so you know, um, has a list of people who regularly attend our church for whom they help to give care. The deacons pray regularly for those on their list. It's a blessing to know that you're being prayed for. The deacons are also available uh, to journey with you through difficulties and to help in practical ways. For instance, they often help to set up a meal train when meals are needed because of hospitalization or illness or injury or having a baby. 
If you aren't sure who your deacon currently is, uh, feel free to contact me. I'll be happy to tell you. Or maybe you know your deacon's name, but you're not quite sure who that person or couple is. So in a, in a minute, uh, Pastor Woody will invite the deacons um, up front so that you'll get to see those who are being consecrated in the service. But some will be in the next service, and some are even away today. Um, and one, Teresa Baltimore, is in the hospital. Um, so um, we wanted to share pictures of all of them so that you would see all our deacons. Keith, you can play them now. I would like all the deacons who are in this service to please come forward and stand here in the front. <laughs> Brothers and sisters in the Lord, God through the Holy Spirit has directed the church from its early days to the present time to set apart called people to look after its temporal interests and to labor for the spiritual unity and growth of the members of Christ's body. Learning from the New Testament, we call these servants deacons. Persons called to this service express loyalty to God by their service to the church. They are spiritually minded and possess wisdom and discernment in dealing with the affairs of the church. The Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church, having full confidence in the faithfulness, loyalty, wisdom, and spiritual integrity of these brothers and sisters, according to the practice of our fellowship, have, we have called them to the office of deacon. Please respond as I direct you. Um, for as much as the church has called you to assume the office of deacon, I now request that you answer the following questions. Do you declare anew your faith in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and your allegiance to him and his church? If so, answer, I do. Do you purpose to fervently cultivate your own spiritual life by Bible reading and prayer? If so, will you answer, I do. Do you purpose to encourage and lead the church in 
deepening spiritual life and in her ministries of compassion? If so, will you answer, I do? Do you purpose to further the interests of this church to the best of your ability and to cooperate with the pastor, really important, and members in promoting the harmonious and effective working of the whole? So answer, I do. Do you then accept the office of deacon in this body of Christ and purpose to faithfully perform these duties? If so, answer, I do, the Lord being my helper. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. For the folks who have accepted the call to serve as deacons in this church. Bless them, protect them, use them, Lord. Give them compassion. Give them, Lord, the ability to discern. Lord, protect them from the evil one. Bless their families. And Lord, help them to be your instruments in this church. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are now set apart in the office of deacon to serve the Lord and the people of the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ congregation. May you experience God's special grace in this calling. And the people of God say, will you bless the deacons here? Kids may go to um, creation, yeah. <laughs> Today, I'm as we continue through the series on John, I'm starting with John chapter 15, verse 26, and reading through John chapter 16, verse 15. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... The spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time come, this time comes... You will remember what I have warned you about. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. In this dialogue with his disciples, 
Jesus is preparing them for the end, preparing them for persecution. He said, if the world hates me, it'll hate you too. He's getting them ready for the crucifixion. He's getting them ready for his departure. And at the beginning of the 16th chapter, he tells them, I am going away. And he said, you're going to be full of grief. And then he stuns them with the truth that they could not comprehend. He says, it is to your advantage, it is to your benefit that I go away. Then Jesus begins to teach his disciples about something I'm sure that was difficult for them to fathom at that point. He told them he was sending another advocate, another helper. The Greek word is paraclete. The word paraclete is rich in meaning. It means counselor, friend, encourager, teacher, witness. It means all of that and more. It's interesting that Jesus says he is sending another one called the paraclete. It's obvious from that context that Jesus considered himself the first paraclete. He was their first counselor. He was their friend. He was their encourager. He was their teacher. He was their rabbi. He bore witness to them about the kingdom of God. In verse uh, 14 of this chapter, Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going away and I will send the second paraclete who will perfectly duplicate my ministry. He's going to tell you what I'm telling him. He will perfectly duplicate everything I did with you. He is my representative. And then later Jesus makes an even stronger statement. Twice he says, what I give him, he will make known to you. And then in the last verse he says, what, I, what, I receive, what he receives from me, he will make known to you. This word known is very, very powerful. It doesn't mean just intellectual knowledge. It means what he makes known to you will be experienced. The identity between Jesus and the Spirit could scarcely be more strongly stressed. Nothing of the personality of Jesus will be lost when the second paraclete comes. The Holy Spirit is clothed with the personality and the mind and the character of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus meant more for us than to memorize or treasure his words. He means more for us than following his way of life, even though it is a superior way of life. He means more for us than benefiting from his teachings. Jesus means for us in the 21st century in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, right here in this sanctuary, he means for us to experience him, to have communion with him. Jesus means for his friendship to be the biggest reality in our lives. That is why the Holy Spirit is in us and with us, and he is here this morning. The great French mathematician and philosopher Pascal, when he died, they were preparing him for burial. And he always wore this coat. And they discovered in the lapel of the coat he wore a parchment that he had carried in that coat for years and years. And on the parchment it says this, on November 23rd, 1654, he wrote on this parchment, from about half past 10 in the evening to half past 12, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. He was a philosopher and scholar. Certainty, certainty, feeling, joy, fire, the fire of God's love, certainty. Pascal encountered the living Jesus Christ. He was a believer not because of some philosophical deduction or because he was a scientist. 
He was a follower because he experienced the overwhelming reality of Jesus Christ through the Spirit. Here was a man who was a brilliant mathematician and equally brilliant philosopher. He was famous. He was sought by people all over Europe for his intellectual brilliance. And yet when he died, it was obvious that the most important thing he considered to have happened to him was that encounter with Jesus Christ on November the 23rd, 1654. I just, you know, it went beyond intellect, beyond philosophy, beyond mathematical certainty. This is the major work of the Holy Spirit, to reveal to each of us the living Jesus Christ. Christianity is utterly sterile without the Holy Spirit working in us. The terribly sad truth this morning is that every Christian at least pays lip service to the existence of the Holy Spirit, but many Christians virtually have no effect of his, the, the Spirit's working in their lives. The fact is many Christians have little power or joy in their lives created by the Spirit who was sent to create joy and power in our lives. I remember one time I went to a seminar and the speaker said something that gripped me. He was talking about how the, he challenges his congregation to obedience. And in describing that, he said, we cannot allow a gap that is too big between knowledge and experience because that gap creates guilt and frustration. It becomes a wedge between us and God. And if we feel guilty and frustrated long enough, we will either give up the challenge of being a Christian and walk away from our faith, or we will water down our faith. And I see both things happening all the time. This means for his, God means for his children to live life differently than those who are non-Christians. He means for there to be more love in our lives. The love of God itself spilled into our marriages and into our parenting and into our neighborhood. He means for there to be an integrity and generosity in the way we do business that customers notice. He means for the church to be so filled with worship and unity that there is a natural attraction to those who visit. God has made provision for us for these very things to happen. God's plan of salvation for us includes a power, an energy, a presence that would cause us to transcend our natural instincts and go beyond our sin natures. Jesus paid too high a price for our salvation to have us live continually defeated lives, dominated by sin and dominated by our weaknesses. We are supposed to be victorious people. The Christian life was never meant to be lived by the flesh or by human effort alone. It was never intended to be a byproduct of our dedication or resolve. Charles Stanley wrote this. He said, I don't think I'm stretching it to say that a good many followers of Christ feel like abandoned orphans, directionless, unmotivated, discouraged, looking for a cause to attach themselves to. They simply do the best they can. If the Christian life is simply a matter of doing our best, there was no need for God to send the Spirit to help us in the first place. After all, our best is our best. How do we improve on that? Since God is omniscient, as we certainly believe he is, he knows when we've done all we can do. Why complicate matters? Jesus let it be known, however, that God was looking for more than our best. He was looking for a lifestyle and an attitude that superseded our best, a lifestyle and attitude that could never be attained through our own efforts. Think about this. If we don't need any help, why send a helper? The promise of a helper presupposes that we need help. 
The promise of a helper was Jesus' way of tipping us off to one of the most profound truths concerning the Christian life. The Christian life is impossible. The quality of the life Jesus expects from his followers is unattainable apart from uh, some outside intervention. The Christian life is not simply difficult. It is not something that gets easier with time. It is not something you grow into. It is impossible. You can't live it. I can't live it. God doesn't expect us to live it. He knows it's impossible. Jesus knew it was impossible. And that is why we need to come to grips with what Stanley calls this liberating truth. Liberating, you say. Why is this liberating? It sounds depressing to me. It's liberating because you may be on the verge of understanding why you have failed in your attempts to live the Christian life. I meet people all the time who say something to the effect, I tried to live the Christian life, but it doesn't work. I've got some good news. Christianity is not the problem. More than likely, the problem is that you have been trying to live it, the Christian life apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. That means for some of us, the best thing we can do is give up. At least give up trying to do it on our own. Our dedication and resolve doesn't cut it. I remember years ago, more than 35 years ago, we had a dear lady in this church, and I, I, I really cared and care for her. She's uh, somewhere else now, so I, that's why I'm using this illustration. And uh, this lady, though utterly sincere, she could not sing a lick. And I don't mean she missed the occasional note or she was a little half, you know, half, little flat. I mean, she, never, when she, she sang two specials in our church. And neither special did she come within a half an octave of the correct notes. I would say, you know, it was like listening to fingernails being drugged across a chalkboard, but that's really not fair to chalkboards. People were literally pinned in their pews. And her failure was not from a lack of effort. She practiced. She tried hard, real hard, too hard. And sincere, oh my Lord, was she sincere. But all her effort and sincerity still left her with a voice that drove cockroaches out of the building. By the way, I, we pay Ehrlich a lot. Maybe, no, never mind. <laughs> All her effort and sincerity still left her with a voice that didn't cut it. And when it comes to living the Christian life, guess what? You and I can't cut it. Our righteousness and our efforts fail uh, God's additions every time. We can't sing his song on our own. The first prerequisite of living in a spirit-filled life is to recognize this very truth. We just can't do it. The first step in walking in the spirit is that you've got to get tired of walking in the flesh, of trying and failing, of trying, period. You have to be tired of being tired, tired of the gap. Mark Buchanan said that, that he was taking a class in seminary and it was the class that every seminarian dreads. It was homiletics class. And that's when you get in front of all the professors and you get in front of all the other students in the class and you give a sermon and then everybody gets to critique it. I went through that. I hated it. It was the least popular class in seminary because you know everybody's nervous. Everybody's trying to impress one another. Everybody, whether they admit it or not, want to outdo the other one 
And he said, morning came for his turn to preach. He said, there were 26 people in the class. The instructor had assigned our places in the lineup. He said, I was 17th. And we began. He said, my peers were good, intimidatingly so. When my turn came, my confidence was bruised, but I did all right. Everyone said so. Steve was, Buchanan said, number 22. Unlike most of us, he was not a seasoned speaker, not back then anyhow. And preaching wasn't his day job. He was a bivocational preacher. And he walked up to the front, and we could see he was shaking. And when he turned around, his eyes were wide with fear, and he openly confessed before he preached. He said, I'm scared. It's okay, Steve, we all said. It's just us, the ones who are trying to crush you. <laughs> Steve told the story from Luke's gospel about the woman who was bleeding for 12 years and who, bankrupt from medical bills, ready to give up, threaded her way through a teeming crowd to touch the hem of Jesus' robe. She managed that, then melted away into the crowd. But Jesus knew. He stopped, even though he was in a hurry, trying to get to Jairus' house before his daughter succumbed to her illness, and he drew the woman out. That one touch, deliberate, desperate, faith-filled, did what years of doctors, platitudes, and cures fell to do. One touch from Jesus on the hem of his garment healed her instantaneously. She, Steve told the story, no embellishments, no dramatic flair. He might have just as well read it. Still, when he finished, he said every student in that room, every preacher in that room was silent because something holy had taken place. He said we were at the very least caught up in the wonder of that long-ago moment, that fearful, hopeful woman touching Jesus' garment and walking away with health brimming in every part of her. Twelve years of bleeding, all the mess and cost and stench and weariness of it, gone in an instant. We were supposed to critique Steve at that point, but no one wanted to. We sat in stone stillness, and in the room's quietness, we heard weeping. We all turned and saw that it was Wendy, the administrator. She had been taping our speeches, our sermons, but now she sat there catching tears in her hands. The instructor asked her if she was okay. Yes, she said between gasps. Yes. She calmed herself and then told us what had happened. For four months, she said, I've been in constant pain. I've been to my doctor several times. She sent me to see specialists. They ordered test after test. None of them can tell me what was wrong. My husband and I have been frustrated and terrified. We told no one I thought I'd have to live this way the rest of my life. Who knew what was, this was going to develop into? And then she started to weep again. And through her tears, she said, but when Steve started talking about Jesus and this woman touching the hem of his garment, she said that when he was talking about her touching the hem of his garment and virtue went out, she said at that moment, virtue came out of Jesus and went into me. She, she said, Jesus has healed me and all the pain is gone. And he said, the class applauded and we congratulated Wendy and we praised the Lord. But Mark Buchanan said, I sat there ashamed. I'd been so anxious to impress everyone else to be better than everyone else. 
There was no room left in my preaching for what Jesus thought about my preaching. It took Steve in weakness, in fear, in trembling for God to come into power in that room that day. He said that night I couldn't sleep. This time, though, it was different. He said, I laid there and something rose up in me and he said, I want more, God. I want more of you. And the Lord said, I want that for you too. Jesus wants to give us his spirit. He wants to fill us with himself. And nothing less than that will do. Not in the kingdom of God. The flesh cannot do God's work. Even if it's hardworking, sincere, doctrinally correct flesh, it still can't do God's work. I'm aware this morning, it doesn't matter how well or badly I preach. The only thing that matters is what is the Spirit doing in this room right now. The first step to living in the Spirit is to be desperate enough to give up the flesh. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled Blessed are people who are desperate for more. Blessed are people who have come to the end of themselves. Blessed are people who can't do it and know they can't do it. Blessed are people who are tired of messing around and want something beyond themselves, want real Christianity. George Whitfield, probably the most powerful preacher in the Second Great Awakening, he worked with the Wesleys. It said that before his ministry started, there was a spirit filling in him that was, that was magnificent. And he said, before the spirit filled him, he said he got up one morning and cried out, I thirst! I thirst! And that changed everything. The prerequisite for the spirit-filled life is wanting it. And wanting the results only God can produce in our lives and in his church. We must hunger and thirst for Christ to be glorified. We must hunger and thirst to feel the love of Jesus firsthand. We must want living truth, not just dead doctrine. The Spirit has come to make Christ known. What Jesus said here has happened. There's a world of difference, you see, between looking at pictures of someone and meeting them personally. As a matter of fact, that's as good of an analogy of the work of the Holy Spirit as I know. We have snapshots of Jesus, pictures of Christ painted by the words of the gospel writers. But snapshots, while valuable, don't give us the whole picture. But what if those snapshots could actually turn into videos? And what if the people on the videos could jump off the videos and be there present? That is what the Holy Spirit does with Jesus Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit's work is to take us from the word paintings about Jesus to the living Christ right in our midst. We are finite creatures. And because of that, we must use finite means to communicate. We make sounds that we call words. We write symbols on paper. We use sign language or body language. But the Holy Spirit is infinite. And he can guide our thoughts directly without using any of those means the spirit can directly put a thought into our heads his wisdom the spirit has been sent to pour the love of christ directly into our hearts there's nothing between me and jesus i don't have to wait till fedex delivers 
I don't have to wait until I get a letter. The Spirit has come to pour heaven's joy directly into our spirits. He has come to reveal and glorify Jesus Christ directly to us. Why? Because he guarantees us an intimacy that goes beyond anything we've ever known. When he is working from the inside out, when he is as close as our own breath, as close as our own thoughts, as close as our own skin, that is an intimacy you can attain no other place, no other way. And he is here for that. And the great news is that it is possible for everyone. The question is, is do we want that? You know, there are ways you can measure the spirit life. Like, for instance, and again, this is, this is, this is a checklist. Like, you, you go to the doctor, they check your blood pressure, they check your blood, they check your pulse, they check all kinds of stuff. Here's a test. Here's a, here's a doctor's test. How much am I experiencing God's presence these days? What is my appetite for reading Scripture? How naturally do I find myself experiencing gratitude and expressing it to heaven? Am I praying more or less than in the past? Do I find prayer to be a stress reliever or a guilt producer? Is my personal and social conscience growing clearer? Am I noticing under-resourced people more? Am I giving more, wanting to give more? Am I more loving? Am I more patient? If that's not coming up very high on whatever the meter is, I've got news for you. You need more of the Holy Spirit this morning. And the Holy Spirit will never force himself. In some way, we have to become preoccupied with Jesus. Are we seeking the life only the Holy Spirit can produce? One pastor gave this example that he saw in his own church of the difference the Holy Spirit makes. He said, I know of two men. Both are men of faith and virtue. But one seeks the Spirit and the other doesn't. One invites daily the Spirit to meet him and fill him and guide him and empower him. And the other just guilt trips himself into working harder, chastening himself when he falls short. In some ways, the second man is more impressive. He is sharp mentally. He gets more done. He's efficient. He has fewer mess-ups. He can quote with flawless accuracy more scripture than the first man. Here's his problem. He just lacks joy. His faith and virtue sour more with each passing year. He struggles with judging others and hating himself, the twin offspring of self-striving. He nurses bitterness deep down inside towards God he won't admit. His children are mostly silent, but they have watchful, distrustful eyes. It makes me wonder what's going on at home. The love that is in his heart for God himself, everyone else, he said, I can watch it withering. He said, the other man garbles scripture and can never remember what, pass what passage comes from where. He bumbles and ambles at times. He is earthy in a way, some, in a way that some people find shocking. <laughs> like him already. He could lose a few pounds. <laughs> And sometimes forgets mid-sentence what he's talking about. Hey, I'm getting there. <laughs> Thank you, Philip. <laughs> he, 
But here's the difference. The, sec- the first man abounds with joy. He gets sweeter every day. Are you getting sweeter? I'm going to ask the wives, is your husband getting sweeter? I just see elbows going. He is one of the few people I know who truly loves sinners and hates sin. And people instantly sense it since they are safe with him, even though he has a higher standard. His love for God is as inviting as a blue lagoon and contagious as laughter. He is his children's hero. Some of the difference between these two men is simply owing to temperament, but only some. The one man, the man with joy, was not always like this. There was a time he was angry and self-absorbed, and he nearly divorced his wife. He was a lover of money and a lover of self, but he changed. And what changed him? The Holy Spirit changed him. This man lives as he breathes the truth of Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. He pays attention to the spirit's quiet movements like some men do the stock market fluctuations every day and others do sports scores. In any situation, well, almost always, he sets down his own gut reactions and asks, in situation after situation after situation, How is the Spirit leading here? What would delight and not grieve or quench the Spirit? In what direction is the Spirit moving? Two men, both with faith, both go to church, both on the surface live good lives. But one of them seeks the Spirit in season and out, and the other just tries harder. Buchanan said, it's the first one I want to be like. What about about you? Which one are you like? Are you tired, religious, grumpy, empty, exhausted, and you don't know how you can keep on doing this? Or is there a power in you that is transforming you, changing you, and the ride is a joy? That's the question. There's been a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit the last 50 years. Some people teach that if you have the fullness of the Spirit, you will speak in tongues. Some teach that if you have the Spirit, you will undergo this kind of experience or that kind of experience. Some teach that if you have the Spirit and enough faith, you'll make lots of money and prosper and never get sick or won't stay sick long. But I don't read that in my Bible about what is the hallmark of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told us in these verses we read this morning what the Spirit has come to do. The core of the Spirit's work is to reveal Jesus Christ, the risen, reigning, glorified Christ into our hearts. The Spirit's main function is to make us realize that the Christ who walked on earth and loved us and died for us now lives in glory and lives for us and loves us forever. And through Him, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus pours his love into the depths of our spirit. Jesus replicates his life in us. You see, there is a world of difference between intellectual knowledge and experience. There's a world of difference between looking at a picture of a steak and actually eating a real one. There's a world of difference between 
philosophizing about love and writing a paper on it and actually falling head over heels in love. And there's a difference between studying Christ and being consumed by his love as the Spirit pours that love into you. There's a difference. The Spirit has come to make Jesus known. And the question I ask every one of us is, where are we? If you are dried up, it's been because you've been trying to do this on your own. Don't. The Holy Spirit was sent so you don't have to do this on your own. As Stanley said, it's impossible. Some of us just need to say, God, I'm tired and I'm tired of being tired. I need more than what I got. I know your spirit lives in me and I believe all the right doctrine and all that stuff, but I am not walking in the spirit. I am not inviting you into my life. I'm not depending on you. I'm, I'm a theologically correct Christian who is a functional atheist. Lord, help me to get desperate for you. And Make what I believe real. Make what I believe real. That's your job. Our job is not to convince ourselves that Jesus is real. Our job is let the Holy Spirit reveal the Jesus who is real. Let that happen and seek it until it does happen. I'd like the worship team to come up. I'd like the intercessors to come up. But while they're coming, I just want you to bow your head and close your eyes And I want you to just be honest, really honest about where you are in your spiritual walk. And I want you to be honest about where in my life do I let the Holy Spirit really operate? Or is it just Sunday morning listening to a sermon or quizzing or whatever? What do I let the Holy Spirit into my marriage? Do I let the Holy Spirit into my parenting? Do I let the Holy Spirit into how, what kind of neighbor I am? What kind of employee I am? Do I let the Holy Spirit into my pocketbook? Do I let the Holy Spirit into my worship and say, Holy Spirit, help me worship this morning? Do I let the Holy Spirit help me to raise my eyes beyond me and mine and look at the world and look at the needs of the world and look at the, what's wrong with the world like Jesus sees it? Oh, Lord, oh, Holy Spirit, take us from where we are now. And, Lord, if we're empty, help us to admit we're empty and start there. If we're cynical, Lord, we give you our cynicism this morning. Start there. If we're exhausted, Lord, we give you our exhaustion. Start there. But, Lord Jesus... Lord, some of us are tired of trying to produce spiritual fruit by the flesh. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Live your life through us, Jesus. Live your life through us, Holy Spirit. Lord, carry us instead of us carrying our religion. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar is open. Would you stand as we sing the final song?